Revelation 17, 1 through 19, 10 is still our text. And this text, as we've seen, gives details of the fall of Babylon, which is the name in the tribulation period for this governing system. We're not sure exactly what form it's going to take. But in the prophecy, it's called this Babylon. We've talked about why, and we're not going to go into that again. But this governing influential system shares some similarities with the beast, who is the Antichrist, and his government. And that they both despise believers in the tribulation period and hunt to destroy them. But God puts it into the heart of the beast and his government in chapter 17 to bring his partner in crime, Babylon, to utter ruin. Chapter 17 tells us why this Babylon was destroyed. And chapter 18 is a reflection on this fall from those who are glad of it and those who are wailing about it. Now, we can never lose sight of the fact that the entire book of Revelation is a message that the Lord Jesus delivers to his church in order to encourage them in times of hardship and persecution. And this long two and a half chapter section is certainly encouraging. It instructs us and admonishes us. And as I was preparing for this morning, because I knew Father's Day was looming, it occurred to me that, you know, these chapters, like so much of the rest of Revelation, do for us what a father desires to do for his children. What does a father do? Well, traditionally, biblically, a father wants to see his children walk in wisdom, not simply to know the truth, but also to know how to process the truth and make decisions that are pleasing to the Lord. That's why the writer of Proverbs says, my son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep description and your lips may guard knowledge. Fathers also want to warn their children from impending disaster, from moral disaster, from spiritual disaster. But they also assure their children of their love and their safety. And they want their children to be joyful, joyful for the right reasons, but joyful and as fathers, we are always the first to recognize we don't often, uh, we don't always get it right. We can neglect one or more of these goals, or we may go too far in one and not the other. We can be too consumed with uh, assuring our children and managing their happiness that we shy away from admonishing them and discipling them in the way of wisdom. Or we can be so intent on admonishment and discipline that we forget to reassure them or notice that they're becoming discouraged. But all of these goals should aim toward one ultimate goal so that children are pointed to God, so that they worship God. I've heard many a father and mother say, you know, I know my children are not going to make all of the same decisions I made, okay? And, and a lot of you parents who have older children would say, amen, that's exactly what happened. And my parents are here this morning. They're probably saying, amen, I didn't make all the same decisions uh, that, that they made. But as long as they are seeking the Lord, I hear parents say, as long as they have a desire to please him that's genuine, that's what really matters to me. That's at the core. And God can take that and do anything he wants with it. Well, it's striking to me that our Lord Jesus Christ, who has delivered this word, this revelation to the church, has the same desires for us as a father for his children. We see that the Lord wants us to be wise about our time and about his word. 
and he admonishes us as much as he assures us. And he wants our joy to be full. That's what Jesus says in John 15 and 16. And of course, Jesus always points us back to the heavenly father. And we shouldn't be surprised by this because Isaiah 9, 6, which is a verse I know we always roll out around Christmas time, but actually has implications for Jesus as the coming king. The ascension names of Jesus here, his throne names are wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. When the prophecy says that the Messiah will be an everlasting father, this is not conflating or confusing the Trinity, God the Father and God the Son. It's saying that the rule of Jesus, the one that comes after the climax of Revelation that we are fast approaching in our study, will be a father-like rule in its character. He will love and nurture and admonish and bring joy to the lives of his people. Well, I've been telling you that we've worked our way through these chapters with our focus on responses to this prophecy. In in these chapters, some of the most uh, intricate prophecy is there. We can get hung up on all the different identifications and things that people say the beast is going to be and all that. We've talked about this. We can go overboard and overanalyzing exactly how it's all going to go down, and we don't really know how it's all going to go down. But we should focus on what the Lord wants us to take away from the text. And so we've been focusing on these responses that we should have that that come up in Revelation 17, 18, and 19. And these responses coincide with the fatherly goals that I've just mentioned. Our five points through these, these chapters are be wise, be warned, be assured, be joyful, and worship God. Jesus would say to us, be wise. We spent three weeks looking at this particular idea as we worked our way through a lot of the details of these chapters. Revelation 17, 9 says, this calls for a mind of wisdom. And we saw over a three-week period this need to know what the prophecy says and to understand it in the way God has given it to us. And then we spent a couple of weeks in the second admonition, be warned. Because Revelation 18, 4 and 5 is a warning to God's people to get out of Babylon. He says in chapter 18, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. We took a close look at the sins of Babylon, this wicked governing system in the tribulation period that by political design intentionally seeks to destroy any worship of God while it causes the world to become drunk with the gifts of God. A policy of spiritual adultery, exactly what we're reading about in Hosea. And the meaning of this warning the Lord gives to us is not to move physically away from unbelievers, but not to take part in, to fellowship with her sins, the sins of Babylon, lest we reap the same consequences. Just as Jesus prayed for us in John 17, that we would be in the world, but kept away from the evil of the world. And the kind of evil that is emphasized in these chapters that we would substitute the pursuit of God for the pursuit of his gifts is a very subtle and damaging evil that we are all too easily corrupted by when we are living in Babylon. So we should be warned. But this morning, I want to move to a third response. And this is the only Lord's Day we will take with this particular response that the Lord desires for us and he would admonish us, us, admonish us in a fatherly way, lest we make the mistake of making too much of the call for wisdom and warning and not balance that out with admonition and joy. 
We're going to cover this morning this third one. The Lord, I think, wants us to be assured by these chapters. To be assured. The Lord assures us through this prophecy, really like a father assures his children. If I had to summarize the assurance that the Lord offers his people through the book of Revelation and indeed all of Scripture, it would be this. God is in complete control. And he will ultimately judge all evil and bring his people to a glorious end. God is in complete control and he will ultimately judge all evil and bring his people to a glorious end. When we assure our children, sometimes it's when everything is going well and there's no sickness, no trial. We just want to pull them close and let them know they're safe and we love them. But sometimes as parents, we find that we're offering assurance when it is most needed during times of difficulty, when our children are going through an illness or disease or recovery from an accident or times of disappointment or sadness or loss. What do we say then? Our current culture would tell us to give them some kind of Disneyland pep talk about following their dreams and all is going to be right in the end, a kind of humanistic idealism with a nebulous hope that the sun will come out tomorrow. I think it's immensely important that if our children are going to know God, they have to be assured in the same way the Lord assures all of his children. God is in complete control. And he will ultimately judge all evil. He'll get rid of it all. Even sickness, even death, even sadness, even mourning. And bring his people to a glorious end. In other words, God knows what's going on right now. And he is powerful enough to change anything he wants in our lives and in the world around us. Add to that the fact that God is all wise. He knows what's best for us, even though we cannot see, and even though we can't know everything he knows. Add to that the fact that God loves us, and he really loves us. So he will never allow anything to happen to us that is not for our greatest good and for his ultimate glory. He is a good God. And furthermore, God will ultimately defeat and judge everything that opposes his goodness and everything that oppresses his people, anything dark in our world, whether the works of the devil or sickness or sorrow, he will bring it all to an end. And we, his people, will be celebrating with him and for, forever in complete rest and harmony with God and those who are also in harmony with God. All that and much more is what we mean when we say that God is in complete control and he will ultimately judge all evil, and bring his people to a glorious end. Now, how do we know that that assurance is real? How do we know that it's true? The only objective written revelation of divine truth that we have is the word of God. And we can go to many places where we find this assurance in the word of God, but it appears right here in these chapters, I think, in remarkable ways. And so in our minutes together, I would like to quickly highlight these truths that assure us. There are three of them I just want to highlight this morning from this text. First of all, we are assured of God's control. We are assured of God's control, his power, his authority, his say-so, his ability to decree something, and it will be done. 
his complete freedom to change or destroy or create anything he wants on his own, by his own perfect free will. God has the freedom to act if he wants to. Nothing is standing in his way. He never has to think twice about something and who he might upset or who might be standing in his way. If it is the wise thing to do, he is completely free to do it. He's not like us. He's free. Now, what we are about to see in these chapters is based upon a principle of God's control that I think is more particularly spelled out in Romans chapter 13. And if you want to turn there in your Bibles, that, that would, that's fine. I'm going to have the words on the screen here for you. But to get the fuller context... I'm interested only in the opening principle that is set down for us in Romans chapter 13. We could go to other places in the New Testament and see the same principle, by the way, but it's so clear here where he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. In other words, human government, human government. That's what he's talking about here. Which when this is written was the Roman government under the wicked emperor Nero right? I don't care how bad you think our government has gotten, if, if, if you think that way, okay? We're nothing like ancient Rome yet, okay? You just read a little bit about the government of ancient Rome and what went on under the Pax Romana, and you'll see for yourself. But, and this is Nero. It's, he's one of the worst. And Paul pens these words to the Roman church underneath Nero's reign. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Really, Paul? I'm supposed to submit to this terrible Roman government that is opposed to Christianity? Why? Well, he tells us why. Here's the principle. For there is no authority except from God. And those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Notice he just said the same thing twice. He said it once negatively and said it, said it once positively. There is no authority except from God. And secondly, what God has set up, it comes from him. It was put there by him. And after making this statement, Paul begins to apply the truth to how Christians are responding to the government. I left a little bit of that up here. Therefore, he says, because of this, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed. And if you keep going on and reading about the first seven verses here of this chapter, you'll see all these different wonderful applications of what it means to live under human government because God put that government there. I don't know how he did it. I don't know, he, I don't know how he raises up a government that is wicked and not intersect with the idea that God never does anything evil. There's a lot of things we don't understand about God as he works in the world, and yet he is a pure God, a holy God. But he tells us this here. We don't have to wonder about it. God sets up authority. And we can take the time to look at all of the application, but I just want to make the point here, all authority comes from God, and that goes for authority of government, authority in the workplace, authority in the military, pastoral authority, parental authority, and so on. It's all from God. It all chains back to him. And a huge part of learning to live like a faithful follower of Jesus Christ is to learn what it means to honor God by honoring the authorities that he has placed in our life. And also knowing when we should appeal to a higher authority that is standing, when, when, when our lower authority is standing in the way of our obedience to God. And by logical necessity, all authority that God gives, ready for this? All authority that God gives is less than his authority because it's derived by him, from him. The authority he gives is weaker than his all authority. It's not as profound because it's derived. It's been given to 
a weaker vessel. Only a higher authority can put somebody in authority under him. And there is no authority higher than God. All other authority is weaker than God's. All other authority is not as lasting as God's. Keep this in mind. I mean, I know this makes logical sense. You can figure this out for yourself, but we got to keep this in mind when we look at the authorities in the world and the authorities that we see here in these chapters. The authority is put there by God and it's not lasting. And it's weaker than God's authority because it's derived authority. It may seem really powerful to us, but it's not. It's under God's authority. The authority that anyone has in your life right now will eventually come to an end except for one person's authority, God's authority. Now take that principle and plug it into the lengthy section of Revelation that we're unpacking over the course of these several weeks. Where do we find authority in these chapters? There's a bunch of different places. We're only going to look at some of the texts that we could look at uh, this morning. And because of the temperature in here, you're probably good with that. So I'm going to look at chapter 17, verses 12 through 14 first. And he says this, the 10 horns that you saw are 10 kings. Of course, uh, if if you haven't read Revelation recently and you're, you're a guest with us this morning and haven't been... In, in the series, you might wonder about some of these verses, but we're not, we don't have the time to, to unpack the context right now with this. But, but he says here, the 10 horns that you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received royal power. That means they haven't received authority yet. But they are to receive authority. See, notice they're to receive it as kings for one hour together with the beast. Where does it say they receive this authority from? It doesn't. This is an example of what we call uh, in theology a divine passive. That is an invisible actor. And oftentimes when you see this, God is the actor. In fact, most times God is the ultimate actor. Ultimately, these kings derive their authority from God. Now, what do they do with it? Verse 13 says they are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They give him the authority. They surrender to him. They put themselves under his authority so that they can work with him. But what happens then? In the end, he says, they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords, the king of kings. In other words, he is the ultimate authority. We never have to wonder about how it's going to turn out in the end. If we know who has the ultimate authority, who has the ultimate power. And that provides us great assurance, not only because of what will happen in the end, but because of what's happening right now in our world. When we look at events in the world, as well as events that are unfolding in our own lives, perhaps, we can be fooled into thinking that things are simply happening randomly with no rhyme or reason. The world, most of the world thinks this way, or they attribute it to some fate or or something. But it's not random. It's not this unending chain of actions and reactions. That's a lie. Because God is in control, which means that he will never let things get out of control. He has, as it were, his hand on the wheel. It also means that what God is doing is moving toward an end that he desires. The one who is in control can can move things to where he wants them to go. So these chapters assure us of God's control. Secondly, these chapters teach us that we can be assured of God's judgment on evil. Of God's judgment on evil. Now, of course, one of the themes that we meet again and again in Revelation is God's judgment on the wicked and on the evil world, the final judgment. 
But chapter 18 in particular takes this assurance, I think, to new heights by providing a richly poetic description of this judgment. You read chapter 18, and you're like, wow, it's like, it's like somebody in an opera stopping and singing an aria. You know, he's celebrating the emotion or the theme of the moment for a long time, and, and pretty soon you're like, okay, okay, we get the point. You know, of course, we don't even you know, speak Italian, so we're not sure what they're saying, but, but they're, they're, they're standing there singing about uh, this, this, this wonderful moment. Well, in chapter 18, it, it's kind of an aria. It's a lament. It's, a, it's both a celebration and a wailing against what has happened. And, and it goes on and on to detail this certain fall of Babylon. We're first struck by the extent of Babylon's judgment. Look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 18. He says, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every uh, unclean and detestable beast. The word haunt means a place to hang out, but it's really the word prison. It's a first semester Greek student word. It's used throughout the New Testament. It's a word for prison. Babylon has become a place inhabited by demons, a prison, literally, for unclean spirits, or another, that's another word for demons. At least one commentator suggests that it may be a reference to the popular conception of hell in that day. The Greeks thought that, uh, of hell as, as Hades, a prison for demons and departed spirits. So it's a way of saying, perhaps, that walking into this once luxurious, coveted city is now like walking into the pit of hell. And it's also a prison for unclean birds and detestable beasts, which may be a reference to the Jewish unclean animals, but probably it's better understood simply as a place where the worst kind of creatures make their home. It's just a detestable place, a place you would never want to be. So this Babylon has gone from something of a prime destination to the most terrifying place on the planet a place you would want to stay as far away from as possible. It's difficult to imagine a more dramatic fall from one extreme to another. And this judgment comes, verse 3 says, because of the sin of abandoning God to go hard after the things of the world. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, her spiritual adultery, like Hosea was talking about. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. We see the extent of this judgment. We also see the speed and severity of this judgment. Skipping down to verse 8, we read, For this reason her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her, the one in control. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off. I think the idea is they they would become complicit in the judgment if they got too close to it. They didn't want to be associated all of a sudden with Babylon. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour, your judgment has come. 
But I want you also to notice the certainty of this judgment in the way it is presented. This is a judgment that is in the future. But the language often frames the lament as if the judgment has already happened. Did you notice that? Notice here in verse 8, her plagues will come in a single day, but then mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And if we go back up uh, to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 18 that we just looked at, you, you might have noticed the same past tense perspective in the very beginning of the lament. The judgment has been presented as if it has already happened. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons. This is a common way that judgment is presented in the scriptures to heighten the sense of warning, the sense of impending doom. So certain is the judgment that is coming that it is spoken of as if it has already happened. We just have to look at the promises of judgment in light of other promises of judgment that God already made in the Old Testament and even in in the Gospels to see this. In the Old Testament, God warned of the coming judgment on specific nations and against his own people. And and this is something we, we should realize. Every judgment that God promised would come on these nations has happened exactly the way God said it would happen. There are dozens of examples, but some of them are more ironic than others. For example, the judgment on Tyre. We read about this in Isaiah 23. We won't take time to look at the text this morning, but God promises he will judge this great and wicked city of Tyre, which is on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. They were so proud of their wealth and accomplishments that they attributed to false gods. And they believed no one could ever touch them because The most important part of the city was not on the land, not on the mainland. It was on an island that you could could look at from the coast, but you'd have to sail out there to get to it. And so if they were under a serious threat from an advancing army, they would simply get in their ships and go out to the island and stick their tongues out of the advancing army on the shore. Nobody could ever get to them. Nobody could ever bring them down, and they knew it, and they exulted in that. They could totally defend their city. When Alexander the Great came to Tyre, he was so intent on destroying this rich and prideful city that he did something nobody else had done. He deconstructed the mainland portion of the city stone by stone. And he used the debris to build a causeway to the island and brought the city to utter ruin. All 30,000 of its inhabitants were either massacred or sold into slavery. And that was the end of Tyre. And when you read Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 23, you're like, yep, that's exactly what God had promised centuries before. The same kind of devastating judgment that Jesus predicted came upon the city of Jerusalem. A lot of you remember in Matthew 24, and and there's parallel accounts of this in Mark and Luke. The Tuesday before Jesus' crucifixion, the disciples are walking by the temple complex and they're ooing and eyeing at all of the uh, workmanship and the gold overlay and all these things in the temple and the richness of it. And, and Jesus told them, there will not be one stone left upon a stone, but every one of them will be thrown down. Jesus just sort of rained on their parade in a sense. He brought them back to reality. This city is going to be destroyed because Jerusalem is going into judgment. Now, when Jesus said that, every stone would be thrown down. It may have simply been a way of saying that the city would be utterly destroyed and the temple would be utterly destroyed. But historians have noted that when the judgment came and the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, the gold overlay of the temple 
melted when the temple was burned. You can burn marble. And the gold ran in between the cracks of the stone. And those Romans literally wrenched every stone off of the stone to get at the gold that had run down between the stones. My only point is, when we look back at the prophecies of judgment in the word of God, every judgment that God promised and unrepentant people came to pass undeniably and completely. And this judgment on the evil city or governing influence called Babylon will certainly come also. And and that is supposed to give us assurance. Because we often wonder, don't we, when the wrongs of the world will be righted. When will it happen? We see injustice. And it it makes us incensed, doesn't it? It it causes us to say, wait a minute, that shouldn't be happening. God, why don't you do something about that? You ever think that? We see hatred and senseless acts of violence. And we know about slavery and trafficking and killing of innocent people. And it feels imbalanced. We know it's not right. In fact, I, I think most of you realize that people use the evil of the world as an excuse for not believing in God. So that's even worse. I mean, God, if if you would write some of this stuff, wouldn't people say, oh, now I believe in you? We've seen that's not the case when we read the response of the people in Revelation, right? But, But we think that. The recognition that bad things happen to good people, sometimes unspeakable things like the Holocaust or the other evil programs of genocide, this is the atheist's best, basically only offensive argument against Christianity. Why does God allow evil in the world? Can he stop it? Or does he not know about it? Or does he not care? And if he's not powerful enough to stop it and he doesn't know about it or he doesn't care about it, then he can't be the God the Bible describes him to be. That's their argument. And as God's people, we react to that. We're like, yes, he is powerful. He's all powerful. That's what the word says. And he's all knowing and he's all loving. But at the same time, we do wonder too sometimes about the evil that is in the world. It bothers us as well. And sometimes we we say, God, why? Like the psalmist, why? Or how long, O Lord? Because we are assured of God's control. How can a God who is in control allow something so terrible to happen? Thus, one of the assurances in Revelation, and this is why the Lord came to his people and he took John and gave him this prophecy to give to his church that there will be a day of reckoning for evil. And every wrong will be righted for unrepentant workers of evil. And for reasons we often do not fully understand, God withholds this coming judgment, but he assures the judgment is coming. But I'll tell you this, if you ever are tempted to criticize God that his judgment is not coming soon enough, just ask yourself the question, what if God's judgment had come to me sooner than later? What if my day of reckoning had come before that time in my life when I turned to Jesus Christ? I think there are many of us here who can, in that context, have a greater appreciation for God's perfect timing, even in judgment. But there's one other way that this prophecy of Revelation gives us assurance. We can be assured of God's control, that he will certainly judge evil. We can also be assured of God's redemption of his people. In other words, God's final rescue of his people, his deliverance. And with that, we're going to transition to chapter 19 and begin to focus on this last part of this section, verses 1 through 10. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 9 here uh, this morning. 
this is where there's a rejoicing over the judgment of Babylon and what this means for the people of God. John says, after this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute, that's Babylon, who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Isn't that a a wonderful declaration in itself? These are the true words of God. The marriage supper of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, what is going on here? Because this has not really been... I mean, except for a couple of of places where you can discern it, this has not really been a theme in Revelation. All of a sudden, it sort of comes up, this marriage supper of the Lamb. Next Lord's Day, I plan to go into some detail about this marriage supper of the Lamb and what it actually means for us as we consider the next response to these chapters, which is be joyful. But if I can offer a brief explanation of the metaphor as we wrap up here, the reference to the marriage supper of the Lamb is based upon the ancient custom of marriage that would involve three stages. And these three stages are still detectable in our marriage custom here in Christian marriage uh, today. In fact, John Rogers and Jenna Bothman, this next Sunday, a week from today, will be going through these three stages in their ceremony as they become husband and wife. So they're looking forward to these three stages. Here they are. First, the promise of marriage, known as the betrothal period, which is like our engagement period, during which the bride would be guarded by her father for about a year in his home. And this is the period of time, for example, in the Christmas story, during which, which Joseph is called the husband of Mary, but they hadn't actually become husband and wife yet. That's because it's the betrothal period. They, everything, the, 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 the license had been signed, we could say. Everything is ready for the marriage, but there's this period of waiting. The second stage is when the betrothal period is over, the marriage itself would take place, and it would begin with this processional. It would be a, this joyful celebration of the bride and her family and her attendants parading down the street to bring the bride to the home of her husband where he would welcome her and take 
her to be his wife. Today, this custom is mimicked by the bride coming down the aisle with her father uh, after the attendants have gone forward. And finally, there would be a great feast, which parallels our wedding receptions. But this is the feast that would go on sometimes for days. It was a marriage supper, a marriage festival, celebrating the union at last of the husband and wife. And this festival is what is in view here in chapter 19. The final stage, this festival, this glorious, wonderful, triumphant celebration of the Lamb, our Lord Jesus Christ, and us, his people, coming to be with him, finally, face to face. This is our redemption. This is what we hope and long for. That when we pass from this life, we will step into eternity where we will finally be united with the one who redeemed us. And it will be a glorious celebration that what we long for as the Lord's people will be finally realized. The Lord wants us to have this blessed assurance now of what he is going to do to bring all of human history to this one point where he brings everything that is shattered back together again in great unimaginable joy. Even the best of earthly fathers can offer only limited amounts of insurance, that their children will be provided for and kept safe and find a wise pathway in life following the Lord. Because our resources as parents are limited. We are not all-powerful. We are not all-knowing. Our our children, when they're very young, think we are, okay? But they soon find out that that is not the truth. But God, our Heavenly Father, offers us infinite assurance from unlimited resources of authority and wisdom and strength. So no matter what is going on in our world or what is going on in your life today, let the Word of God be your assurance Read it, reflect on it, memorize it, look at the promises, find your encouragement and hope and strength only in that which God's word can supply. After all, as it says in this text, these are the true words of God. Father, thank you for...